Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Ben Harris, who's the CEO of Link Industrial, which is Blackstone's industrial sector operating platform. For those of you who follow these things, Blackstone has been in and out again in terms of having an industrial operating business platform. They're always in, of course, on doing deals, but they built up and sold their industrial business platform some years ago and have restarted on an operating platform basis less than two years ago with the creation of Link Industrial alongside a few, now many, key portfolio acquisitions. Our guest, Ben Harris, is the CEO overseeing the very rapid growth of that business, both in terms of assets and in terms of building the operating platform. For me, there are really two interesting themes embedded in this conversation. First, what are the high-level trends, truly secular changes, driving what has simply looked like an asset class on fire since the global financial crisis? But it is like multifamily and retail sector changes tied to fundamental changes in the economy and how business operates, in this case, fundamental changes in how we shop, how we distribute goods. And how far through the secular change and realignment are we? Ben and I will talk about that. Second topic, not directly discussed in the podcast, is thinking about the difference of two approaches to real estate investment. On the one hand, we have the dedicated end-to-end approach of the REITs, epitomized in this case by Prologis, the undisputed global giant focused solely on the industrial space. On the other hand, we have Blackstone, which is agnostic to industrial, now operating through Link Industrial as the operating platform, amassing a giant portfolio in this space. I find the contrast and similarities of these two ways of doing business to be fascinating and an interesting lens through which to view this conversation. By the way, just thinking about, say, Blackstone Link on the one hand and Prologis on the other hand is way too simplistic a way to think about the ecosystem of the industrial business or any other sector of commercial real estate. They're just the biggest examples of accumulators at the top of the food chain. The middle of the food chain and the bottom of the food chain still includes most of the businesses in our business, which includes developers big and small like a Trammell Crow company or a Panettone at the global national end, and includes many investors like a Torino or more of a sharpshooter like our client Berkeley Partners. The real estate ecosystem is vast and has scale way, way up and down the spectrum. So thinking about this again, The ecosystem of huge companies, the niche companies, the entrepreneurial development companies, the small and large investors is the same in each real estate sectors. In leading voices, in many ways, we're talking to people who lead companies at every place in this spectrum across the real estate landscape of property type. And my mission in the podcast is to see each of these perspectives and provide some context in which to fit each discussion. Also, since Ben and I taped the interview a week and a half ago, Blackstone and Link announced that they had brought Phil Hawkins in to become the chairman of the board of Link. You might know Phil, who some years ago was the CEO of Car America, the office REIT that was one of Blackstone's pre-EOP office acquisitions, and then went on to start up DCT Industrial for Black Creek Group, which later sold to Prologis. Phil leaves the Prologis board to join Link, but a smart and well-heeled move to bring someone with Phil's depth and experience to what you will understand hearing in the podcast is such a rapidly growing company. With all that in mind, I know that you'll enjoy the conversation with Ben Harris. We've wanted to dive into industrial and leading voices for a long while, and I'm so happy that Ben was our first guide. I've struggled to support these podcasts with social media presence. Everyone tells me that I need to develop a Twitter following for Leading Voices, which I've done intermittently, but without much success or dedication. I think it's maybe about seeing the word Twitter in the headlines every day that's kept me out of that platform. 
but we do post every episode on the Leading Voices LinkedIn, and I will endeavor to do so going forward from my personal LinkedIn, and I invite all of you to connect with me there. I will try to respond to any of your comments on that medium to generate discussion on each episode. Or you can email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. As always, please share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues and do rate us on iTunes, which helps more listeners find us. Now for the conversation with Ben Harris from Link Industrial. I'm speaking today with Ben Harris, who's the CEO of Link Industrial, which is Blackstone's industrial platform. This is the first conversation on leading voices in the industrial space. So we have a lot of ground to cover today. We'll probably talk about industrial in general. We'll talk about Blackstone and Link's strategy and goals in the industrial space. And then, Ben, you and your career and your trajectory and how you got to this place that you got. But those are, I think, our three topics. I want to start talking about industrial, but first maybe just say hello and say hello to our guests and introduce the topic of where we are in the world of industrial real estate today in the real estate business. Sure. My name is Ben Harris. As mentioned, I'm the CEO of Link Industrial, which is the U.S. industrial platform for Blackstone. We created Link about a little over a year ago and have been aggressively growing it in a theme that Blackstone believes very strongly in that there is a very large secular change occurring that we're in the early innings of that will continue to benefit industrial real estate. You know, I think there are actually a few different trends that are playing out, but all come together to make industrial a very interesting place to be. And I think will continue to be an interesting place over the next several years. Uh-huh. And we're going to jump back and forth between each of the, maybe the three topics here, but just a, a question about this because Link Industrial was created a year ago by Blackstone, but Blackstone's been in and out of the industrial business, always in, but maybe in and out in terms of a platform. So could you give some history and perspective on the ins and outs, the buys and sells from a big picture standpoint that come in and out of the Blackstone platform for industrial? Their first significant foray into the industrial asset class came about shortly after the financial crisis. They created an entity called Indcor, and through, I think it was 16 or 17 separate transactions built up a sizable industrial portfolio and put together an operating team around that portfolio. The merger between AMD and Prologis created a bunch of available asset management and operations talent in the industrial space, which Blackstone took advantage of and were able to put together a team very quickly. And they grew that business and then sold it to GLP in, I believe it was 2015. Mm-hmm. And with that sale, I actually sold off the operating platform. And so that became GLP's US industrial business. And then shortly thereafter, they began buying industrial portfolios. The first couple of portfolios they did in joint venture with partners or in arrangements where the partner was actually managing the assets. And then they went about starting to reassemble a team And their initial platform was called uh, Gateway, which was made up of actually a couple of people from the old Incor and some others. But I think their intention was always that they believed that there would be a platform available to buy and that they would end up, you know, acquiring a platform. So they they took their time building it up. Uh We ended up becoming that platform that they bought. So we were running a company called Gramercy 
Property Trust, which was an industrial REIT. We had, me and two partners had taken over Gramercy in 2012. Gramercy was the old structured finance business of SL Green Mm -hmm. and had blown up during the financial crisis. But by the time we were brought in, it was essentially just a shell with some cash in it. And we took it over and grew it from 2012 until 2018 and then sold it to Blackstone. And we grew that business from about a little over $200 million of capital up to about $8 billion at the point we sold to Blackstone. And then that operating platform merged with the nascent gateway platform, became the link platform. And we've since bought a couple of other big portfolios and operating teams and have integrated those in. So the, the link DNA actually has a few different trees going back. We actually bought back the GLP US business. So we actually brought back a lot of the old Incor people earlier last year, and then also bought the Colony Capital, their industrial business. We bought a business called Space Center, and then a couple of other portfolios. But the team has come together, and that is what is linked today. We're about 250 people. We have about 400 million feet of industrial space across the country. We're largely concentrated in the sort of primary gateway markets and large logistics markets in the U.S. We're skewed towards smaller infill buildings versus some other strategies focus on bigger, newer buildings or different types of buildings. We're focused on smaller, more infill buildings and are aggressively continuing to grow that portfolio and the platform. Uh And as you're skewed towards the smaller infill buildings, is that what's wound up happening or is that a conscious strategy? And if there were larger, less infill, more in the suburbs or whatever in the hubs, would that be part of the strategy as well? Complementary part of the strategy? It's definitely part of the strategy. I think, and this goes to one of the secular changes that I mentioned earlier, but industrial has traditionally been a very development-oriented business. So going back 30 years, there was very little premium paid to micro locations in the industrial space. So a company, if, if you were a large retailer, you might pick two or three places across the country to serve as large distribution centers. You'd pick a location based on sort of absolute lowest occupancy costs. So whether you were in Ohio or Indiana or Kentucky for a East Coast presence, and whether you were in New Mexico or California or Arizona for a West Coast presence, it wasn't that important. And delivery time was sort of an output of that. So if it took a company an extra day or two to deliver inventory up to Maine or down to Florida, no one was too focused on that. They were really focused on minimizing the cost of the overall logistics footprint. What has changed over the last, I would say, really accelerated post-financial crisis is as with the growth of e-commerce and really a shift towards very rapid fulfillment and very tactical logistics. So logistics went from being sort of a cost center part of a business to being really a competitive advantage where companies' ability to deliver goods rapidly either directly to end customers or to stores becomes a competitive advantage. And that delivery expectation has spread beyond retailers or e-commerce retailers. It's sort of set a standard across the whole space. So that company that used to do, you know, all of their fulfillment out of two big facilities 
one in the middle of a cornfield in Ohio and the other in the middle of the desert in Arizona, now have very sophisticated networks of logistics facilities. And those logistics facilities have been pushed closer and closer to the population centers. So for the first time really ever, logistics is competing with alternative uses in land-constrained markets. Logistics companies or logistics asset users are willing to pay a real premium for location and are really focused on drive time and logistics costs as being a competitive advantage rather than just being a cost center. And so that's really changed the dynamic. So if you own small infill facilities, you have pricing power in a way that you haven't historically. Our view is that, you know, even in past cycles, infill industrial real estate has traditionally performed better than lower barrier industrial assets just because you're not competing with new supply in the way that you are with big logistics facilities in lower barrier places. But what's happened, modern logistics demand has pushed facility locations into places where land is getting harder and harder to acquire and develop. So those smaller infill facilities are the ones that are most acutely faced with a difficulty to deliver new supply at the same time that they're becoming the most in demand from a tenant's perspective. Uh-huh. In questions, I don't understand how a large company would have its different distribution centers. I'm guessing they still have the big, huge ones way out in the suburbs in two or three locations in the country, and that that is complemented by the infill locations, or are the infill locations replacing totally the big distribution centers? It seems to me there's probably both. That's absolutely right. I think there's been an evolution. So the days of the 3 million foot distribution center, those are becoming less common. Now a tenant might, instead of having two big national distribution centers, might have six big but slightly smaller distribution centers that are pushed out closer to the end customers. But then those are serving in a network of smaller facilities for different customers, last mile facilities. And um, one of the other big complications with e-commerce is return. So they're having to figure out not only how to get goods from the facility out to an end customer, but then they also have to figure out how to deal with return goods coming back. So both of those flows have increased the demand for um, total amount of square footage. If you think about a retail store, a retail store really was sort of a last mile facility mm-hmm. in a sense. It, it had an old time shoe store, had sort of a retail front, and then it had a big stock of inventory in the back. As retail has been pressured, a lot of that inventory is no longer kept in the stores and last mile facilities are sort of filling that goal, that yeah. requirement. Yeah, absolutely. This is a store becomes a place you try something on and then they'll order it for you, which they have been saying for years anyhow. So you were like, well, let me just do it online if you're going to order it in the first place because they never yeah, have exactly. it. <laughs> and I'm assuming also that those facilities, the remote facilities, I'll use that word, the remote facilities are probably 10, 15, 20 times more sophisticated and the tenants TI and technology that's sitting in those facilities must be massively different than before. And I'm assuming for those facilities, obsolescence is probably a big issue. Where we're seeing the most significant investment in robotics and racking and technology within the facility are in those larger and medium-sized facilities. So the primary distribution facilities, that is where you're seeing, you know, someone like an Amazon put a hundred million dollars of technology into a 
800,000 foot facility. So that's where a lot of the really sophisticated technology implementation is happening. The traditional last mile facilities that you hear about, Mm -hmm. they're surprisingly unsophisticated in the sense that, you know, and I, I think this is partly because I just don't think that the processes and the solution has been fully worked out, but there are facilities where e-com users has uh, Ubers driving in on one side of the facility, driving through a facility, people are hand-picking packages and throwing them in the backseat of the Uber, and then they're driving out the other side of the facility. So that's actually where I think you'll see a lot of progress and a lot of costs be taken out of the supply chain is in that sort of last mile application. If you look at FedEx has already you know, invested a significant amount of money into their FedEx ground network. That's essentially a last mile platform. And Amazon's been very, very aggressively taking smaller infill buildings. What we've seen with the infill facilities is because there aren't that many of them, tenants take what they can get. And so Mm -hmm. there's actually a lot less obsolescence. They're willing to put up with clear heights and older buildings and less functional truck courts and things like that, that become real problems for bigger buildings in lower barrier markets where a developer can deliver a brand new state-of-the-art building and making those second and third generation buildings very difficult to lease. Right. And you're saying this is early days in a secular chain. So getting in at this point in time is the right point in time to do this. How long does the changeover of the physical inventory to a stabilized place takes? And do we ever get to a stabilized place because technology changes the way we shop and do business so quickly anyhow? You know, I think if you look like online sales, depending on what you're including or excluding, they account for somewhere between 10 and 15% of retail sales. Mm -hmm. It's not crazy to think that that penetration could double from where we are right now. And that's just a massive, massive channel shift that I think will continue to affect the the industrial space. One of the other things that I always think about with industrial is if industrial was competing with, you know, cornfields and turkey farms mm-hmm. for use, new supply, you know, it was never really an issue. When you're looking at facilities and infill locations, you're competing for land sites with condo developers and other uses. And so the ability to deliver newer facilities to address that demand has gotten harder and harder. I think the other thing that's happened is as as most of our big cities have continued to sprawl, Mm -hmm. the drive times from those peripheral locations into the cores of the cities continues to get more difficult. So things like traffic and drive distance become sort of barriers in themselves. So um, if someone wants to be able to deliver consistent two-hour delivery to midtown Manhattan, that radius that they're able to look at facilities is relatively small. Right. And as that happens, the cost of real estate becomes a small component of the differential while the human capital cost and the fuel cost of moving things around become a bigger percentage. That's absolutely right. Logistics costs are really the choke point today. Labor is also a big issue. I think real estate location becomes the much bigger driver than the sort of rental cost, which has allowed rents to go up significantly. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I think about different real estate asset types and I think about specialization in the real estate industry. And it used to be that someone could be a generalist in play in every sector. What you're describing here is that the 
level of technology and knowledge, specialized knowledge that you need to have in the logistics business. You're logistics professionals even more than you are real estate professionals. You have to translate in between the two. We do work with Digital Realty Trust on the data center side of the business. And that side of the business is the same thing. Those people are technologists equal to certainly real estate, which is a kind of a small theme. But you're describing that the knowledge of someone's business and the logistic challenges that they face need to be how you almost consult with your clients. I think that's right. I think, you know, I think the industry continues to become more and more sophisticated than it has been. We joke internally that real estate is finance for C students. Mm-hmm. And then that industrial was sort of like the summer school part of the real estate business. We've moved up to sort of a solid B area. I don't know that we're the sort of data scientists that are operating in the data center space, but we're looking to aggressively utilize data science to help us be a better acquirer and manager of assets. We're, we're looking at pretty sophisticated analytics that we're developing internally to better understand how tenants are selecting sites how we think rents are going to behave in the future, what factors and characteristics we can look at to be a better predictor of that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think all of that is quite new to the space. I think in, historically the industrial space was about getting good land cheap and being able to build buildings quickly and lease them up and then sell them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't traditionally an asset class that people thought of as generating real rent growth because you know, you were constantly competing with new supply, but that's really been the big fundamental change. And you've seen, we're not the only beneficiaries of that. I think you've seen the Prologises of the world and the DCTs before they were acquired. And then some of the more niche players, the Torinos and the Rexfords that are focused on smaller, more infill buildings really benefit this cycle from pretty remarkable internal growth. Yeah. And how much of that do you think is the secular changeover of the way we do business and how much when this becomes a stabilized asset class again without the secular change does the dynamics of industrial performance stabilizes out does it stabilize out as a still an exciting asset class or bond-like returns i'm trying to articulate i i think as long as companies are willing to pay a premium for location Mm -hmm. you will be able to generate attractive long-term rental growth consistent with other real estate asset classes in markets where supply can't be readily introduced. I do think that the change is permanent. Not that the industrial business won't have ups and downs and bumps in the road, but I do think that it's made a fundamental change from going simply a commodity real estate asset class that didn't really have any premium to location to being an asset class where for good locations, you benefit from you know, rising incomes and rising land prices. The facilities are tied to the local demographics in a way that that they haven't historically. Uh And let's play it out a little bit further. You're describing the individual asset will have a premium based upon location. But let's talk about a company because a company has a premium based on intellectual capacity or its portfolio or its relationship with its clients. And then that intellectual component of understanding logistics as well as your clients do. And so what is the benefit of size and scale, relationships, intelligence around that? I think as you've seen the industrial business uh, really start to consolidate, we've been one of the big consolidators. Prologis has been a big consolidator. But I think the large platforms will have access to 
data and access to tenant relationships in a way that the smaller companies will have tougher and tougher time delivering. And we'll be able to trade tenants around. We'll have balance sheet that's big enough to deliver development sufficient to meet demand for new buildings. I think all of those things will favor the larger and larger platforms. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think in the history of real estate, how larger platforms have produced the promise or delivered on the promise of size and scale in some businesses and not in other businesses. And I remember famously when Zelle was creating both equity residential and equity office, and closer to equity residential, but I believe they found the benefits of size and scale in the apartment business, but they never proved out the benefits of size and scale in the office business. Maybe that's changing now, but I think still not as opportune for that. But I think industrial has that dynamic probably in as big a way as apartments or any other sector. One of our advantages is we operate inside the Blackstone ecosystem. So mm-hmm. we're one of a number of operating platforms that Blackstone has internally and in a bunch of different asset classes and a bunch of different markets. We're, we're the U.S. platform, but there, we have a sister company in Europe. There's a platform in Asia. So one of the really interesting things about this seed is we get a view into what's happening in a lot of those other asset classes. I completely agree with you. I think there are asset classes, real estate asset classes, where that scale and tenant relationships create real value. I think about Simon Properties as kind of being the mm-hmm. an example where that was definitely the case. They have deep relationships with all of their retail tenants. They had an ability to shift tenants around within the portfolio and meet tenants' growth demands or ability to Mm -hmm. sort of trade them back and forth. I think that same dynamic is present in the industrial space. I don't think that plays out in the office space. I've always found, I've done a fair amount of office investing over my career as well. I found the office landlord-tenant relationship to always be somewhat adversarial. It's not a strategic relationship mm-hmm. as much as a consumer relationship. So you're right. you're sort of choosing office space for, you know, whatever criteria you're basing it on and you're trying to sort of get the best deal, but you bias is to move to new space because you get new TI packages. It's not as strategic versus retail where you know, an individual retail property's location is very important. That landlord-tenant relationship becomes a very strategic operating mm-hmm. relationship. I think codependence. in industrial, the relationship is much more like a retail relationship than an office relationship. Mm-hmm. So let's change subjects. And I'm, I'm curious to dive more into the ecosystem of Blackstone and how that fits with your business. And let's draw a contrast to how you wind up growing this business, which in its present name, at least, is only a year old. So let's think about that for a minute. And then contrast that, of course, with Prologis. They're six blocks away from where I'm sitting right now. But very different models. In one case, it's a holistic end-to-end investment and operational model. And in your case, I think the investment side might be a Blackstone and the operational side might be in your place, although it's combined, not totally separate. So help me think about the differential with that. And one last comment to that, it may be an interesting one because Blackstone can be a more non-secular, not committed to this business or any one business asset type, where Prologis, of course, has to just keep doing industrial. So they're making timing bets in a different way than you can at Prologis. So, anyhow, talk about that. I think um, those are 
all very good points. I think the the interesting thing for us is we are essentially an independent company that's owned by Blackstone. So we operate, we get to set our own dress code and set our own standards. They operate as a very active and interested sort of executive board to us. So they help us with the day-to-day operations. They're, you know, a significant driver around the strategic decisions, heavily involved on the new acquisition side. We have an acquisitions team in-house and then they have a an acquisitions, you know, obviously they have a huge acquisitions effort and our teams work very closely together. I view our role in that as we're the tip of the spear for their industrial strategy. So we're trying to provide the on the ground insight to make them a smarter investor or smarter operator and investor in in the industrial space. So we're providing them the benefits of being the pure play, like you said, with Prologis by having a big team across the country, by actively developing, by day-to-day leasing and in a way that I think most private equity platforms don't get that depth. They tend to partner with joint venture partners or operating partners to get Mm -hmm. that, but we're sort of captive and in-house, so they, they get the benefit of that. To your point about Blackstone is making a secular bet on the industrial space, which you know we very much believe in, but they have the flexibility as a global real estate manager and, and asset allocator that they can look at opportunities across all different asset classes and then also all within an asset class, all different jurisdictions and say, they could come to us and say, hey, you know, we actually think Europe is much more interesting right now. We're going to cut back the capital that we're investing in the US in the industrial space and focus on Europe or let's sell this or focus on this market. So I think we have an operating flexibility as a part of that ecosystem that's a little bit different than if we were just sort of a pure play industrial rate, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sure does. I'm assuming if I'm thinking of the old Blackstone, where all of their money was kind of opportunistic money, then the answer might be, okay, we're going to sell you and this is over. We're not going to invest in industrial now for the next year and a half or something. But now that they have the dollars coming in from the mom and pops and the non-traded REIT money, which is a constant flow of money, I'd make the assumption that there will be a constant allocation, kind of thinking of the old core fund kind of business, but there'll be a constant allocation to industrial. So you'll never go away. The spigot may be fast and furious or the spigot may be slower, but your business will always kind of have to be there for that part of their business. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, just going to one of those strategic differentiators that we have, we have several different sources of capital. So our belief is we have a pocket of capital that's appropriate for every interesting industrial acquisition that we see in the marketplace. So everything from the BPP fund, which is a core vehicle Mm -hmm. that's a perpetual life, open-ended fund, to BREIT, which is more of a stabilized, income-oriented vehicle that's also perpetual life. That's the non-traded REIT that you mentioned. And then the traditional opportunistic fund. And so at different points in the cycle, we may be more active in one or the other but for B-Read and for BPP, those are perpetual life vehicles that will continue to grow. And that's been one of the big drivers to Blackstone's choice to build these operating platforms in-house is that they really want to have the operating capabilities 
in perpetuity matched up to these perpetual life vehicles. Absolutely. And, and we had a conversation with Lisa Picard from the EQ office arm, so the office arm of Blackstone, uh, eight months ago or so, and kind of similar conversation, although very different asset type. Yeah, no, absolutely. Lisa is terrific. And again, just going back to one of the interesting things that we get out of this platform is, you know, I have direct access to, you know, what's happening in the office space. And I'm always trying to think of how to look at and identify cross-asset trends that may be affecting my business or things that we're seeing in our business that may affect other businesses. We have a terrific strip center team at uh, ShopCore. I'm Mm -hmm. always very interested to hear about how their business is functioning and how tenants are behaving. If we're trying to understand that channel shift Mm -hmm. and understand how things are evolving, not just from the industrial lens, but from a a more holistic lens, I think that's enormously valuable. Mm -hmm. And we're going to kind of hear your story in a few minutes, but talk about the sprint that you've accomplished, because this has been, you said about a year since they've called it Link Industrial. Maybe you started two years ago there. This this part's less about you, but holy cow, you've sprinted to create a portfolio, you know, roughly the size of Prologis in this very, very short period of time and then have to have the operating platform behind it. How do you sprint that fast? Um, it's been it's been a challenge, but it's been a really exciting place to be and, a, and an exciting platform. I, I think Blackstone and their infrastructure and you know access to capital and really their breadth is what makes something like that possible. We bought almost $28 billion of assets and sold almost $3 billion of assets in the past year. So not only have we been enormously active on the acquisition side, but have also been very active on the disposition side. As we've bought large portfolios and small portfolios. We've built up a significant development pipeline. Mm -hmm. We're executing acquisitions and dispositions across a lot of different strategies. So everything from pretty stabilized, few moving part type assets to full-blown redevelopment of of facilities. We bought some office buildings in New Jersey that we're ripping down and building uh, industrial buildings, just as an example. So as we've built out our team, we've really tried to identify people that will thrive in a real high growth, dynamic, but very demanding environment. And that's been a big key as well. I bet. And it's interesting. I'm trying to think of what you always hear when someone buys a huge portfolio or a merger of a company. And I'm thinking again of Prologis and I guess Liberty. Integration's a crazy topic and a topic or an issue that takes one, two, three, four years before an integration on the people side really happens and systems and the rest of it. Maybe it's actually easier for your being, I don't want to use the wrong word, but immature or an unfully formed or a not 20-year-old company that make it easier for stuff to come in and out because you have more flexibility based on a system that's still growing. I've been emphasizing that point to all of our people across the whole firm that it's going to be one of our competitive advantages for the next couple of years. We can be a much more aggressive adopter of new technology. Mm -hmm. We can be a much more aggressive adopter of new ways to do things because we don't have a bunch of legacy infrastructure and legacy processes. As I said before, we were about $8 billion of assets when we sold to Blackstone. And we had a good operating platform. We had gone through a similar exercise with Gramercy where we had grown it very aggressively. We had tried to be very forward thinking with respect to 
technology and selecting the property management and GL platforms that we built the business around. And I always thought of that as a real advantage. We weren't dealing with legacy big platforms. And I think we've really tried to use that as an advantage and, you know, we'll continue to do it. It's not without challenges because you're, you're having to kind of rethink a lot of things, but it's been a really exciting and interesting. We were really proud of the growth and the business that we had built with Gramercy. And, you know, I think that I I don't know that I was thinking that we were going to jump right into something with a growth trajectory like this, but you know, it's been a fun adventure so far. The word chaos is coming to mind. So maybe you have some level of organized chaos in this thing. I don't know. Yeah. It never looks pretty on the inside, but. (laughs) I was at your office. It seemed calm and it seemed like it worked. (laughs) So I think you're okay. So let's totally change the subject. I want to hear how you got here at Leading Voices, all about people's stories. And this is the first podcast where we're 40 minutes into this thing. We haven't talked about you at all. So just kind of Briefly, the early story, and then we'll get to how you got into the real estate business. But I think you were born in Connecticut, grew up in Canada. Kind of just talk a little bit about your background. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I grew up in Connecticut about an hour outside New York City. And then when I was a kid, my parents actually moved to Canada outside of Toronto. And so I did high school and college in Canada and then came back to the U.S. after college and uh, came to New York and you know, I think it's definitely an interesting experience spending some time outside of the U.S. It was, I went into college thinking I was going to stay in Canada for the rest of my life and right. came out of college knowing that I definitely wanted to go back to the U.S. It helps you kind of understand yourself as an American being outside of the U.S. Uh-huh. in some ways. How old were you when you moved to Canada? I basically did high school and college in Canada. Okay. So it's interesting because my daughter lives in Kosovo and she's going to be there for a four-year foreign service. And so I think of that as being really in a foreign country. And this sounds not nice to Canada maybe, but I think of it as like a semi-other country, not a full other country. Or maybe it depends on... Oh, yeah. No, mine's very... It's very sort of (laughs) expat light. Expat light. That's a fair deal. All I was concerned with was not getting a thick Canadian accent. (laughs) I didn't have to learn a foreign language or anything. (laughs) That makes it easier. So, but you said there were observations of learning to be in this other country. So what do you come back from? Even just thinking about career and what I wanted to do and how I thought of priorities and everything. I think in some ways being in a country like Canada that is so similar to the U.S., I've heard very similar sentiment from people that uh, have spent time in England. Mm -hmm. It sort of amplifies the subtle differences. Mm -hmm. So I was an economics major. We actually had two separate economics departments in the college I went to. One was in the arts department and one was in the science department. I was in the Mm. science department. So our economics department was very math heavy. It was essentially like a math degree. And if you looked across my cohort of students, certainly in my more high level classes, Mm -hmm. the sort of dream job that most of them had was to go work in the Canadian Central Bank or, you know, in StatsCan, the the statistical arm of the government or, you know, in research or something like that. That's very contrasted to sort of a similar American student who, you know, their motivation and my American friends that were in similar programs were looking to get into banking or derivatives or finance or, you know, looking to go in more of a sort of a private sector direction. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was sort of a stark difference. I was very attracted to going into the private sector. I had no interest in going and working in a big economics department of a government institution. Mm. I was definitely an outlier in that. 
Uh-huh. And then so subtle difference in that country, people, that career path, and particularly the business-oriented and financially driven career path may be less attractive than in our country where it's a more clear driver. Yeah, I think that's right. Maybe they're taking a more balanced view of their lives and opportunities. But I fell very much into a mindset where I wanted to go and work hard and work on interesting things and be in a dynamic environment. And I wasn't scared of change or entrepreneurialism or anything like that. I think a lot of those things are more American Mm -hmm. characteristics than people realize. Mm -hmm. That's a fair deal. Maybe at the end, we'll come back and see what kind of Canadian attributes you bring into this way of this side of the business. On the other hand, let me ask that question now, though. So what did you pick up from that other approach that may be influencing you today? I would hope that I have, you know, maybe a little bit more of a global perspective on things. I think Canadians, because they're in such close proximity to such a massive gravity center as the U.S., that they work really, really hard to try to look beyond the U.S. for Mm. when they're thinking about current events. Canadians are incredible Anglophiles. They love thinking of themselves as more like the English than the Americans. Um, We're like the kid brother with the big brother right across the border. So Mm. I came to New York from a Canadian college with incredible self-doubt. And I was terrified that I wasn't going to be as smart or as hardworking or as well-educated or as prepared as all of these people that I was coming into the workforce with from American colleges, mm-hmm. which I, I think was, you know, in reality, I don't think that was true, but I think that fear or that anxiety was probably a positive and made me work harder and, you know, be willing to try different things. Whereas if I had gone to Penn or MIT or something, I might have been a little bit more narrowly focused in what kinds of jobs I would look at or what kinds of opportunities I would have looked at. And maybe you wouldn't have gotten into real estate. Although I think uh, some level of fear and incredible self-doubt is so appropriate for a 20-something-year-old. If they don't have it, then maybe it did mean they went to Wharton and they're just (laughs) believers that they could do anything. No, 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 exactly. And to your point, I I definitely would not have gotten into real estate. I would have been, because I came out of college, I, I wanted to go into corporate private equity. That was sort of my dream. And I was looking for sort of parallel opportunities that if I couldn't go and work in a buyout group, I was wanted to work in something that I felt like, you know, would be a similar experience and would sort of have that same trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I ended up working at a firm called WP Carey, which was a real estate sale leaseback fund that did real estate sale leasebacks for corporate private equity. So it was sort of like a halfway house to the private equity world. And that, and that was basically how I got into real estate. Uh-huh. And I'll use pejorative terms. It, I, you've already said it, but maybe it felt a little sleepier than the other kinds of corporate private equity with these assets that just sit there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was always extremely, I don't know, skeptical, but I've always been a slight contrarian and WP Carey's strategy was very appealing to me in the late 90s in the face of the technology boom because I was such a skeptic of most of those things. And mm-hmm. if you sort of buy into a thesis for enough years, at some point you'll be right. And I got to <laughs> got to finally be right in the early 2000s. But I actually thought it was it was a very interesting non-conventional strategy that I thought had a lot of interesting components to it. Mm-hmm. So talk about that non-conventional interesting strategy. Just kind of define that for our listeners, and then we'll get to how that turned into your leaving and eventually getting over to Link. Sure. So WP Carey was a sale leaseback 
company, mm-hmm. really a pioneer in the space. It was founded in the either 1973 or 1965, depending on Bill Carey, the founder, depending on whether he dated it to sort of the real entity or to when he actually started in the business. But the technology or the innovation that they had was you can take real estate assets and buy them from a company that's looking to raise money, turn around and lease those assets back to the company on a long-term lease, leverage those assets in the real estate market and end up with a very interesting strip of cash flow that you could generate significantly higher returns than you could in the equivalent bond market. Mm-hmm. And they really from the start targeted the private equity world and the below investment grade world. So there were situations we were doing turnarounds and pretty challenging credits. We were taking warrant stakes in companies. We were doing pretty creatively structured transactions, Mm -hmm. but all in the vein of trying to arbitrage how capital was priced in the real estate market and how it was priced in the corporate market and whether we could create an instrument through a sale leaseback transaction that had some benefits. I did a big default study on WP Carey's investing track record. And one of the hallmarks of our strategy was we had a lot of credit expertise. We had uh, recruited a lot of ex-CIOs of the big life insurance bond departments to make mm-hmm. up our investment committee. And you know it was, it was very much a credit culture, mm-hmm. albeit a credit culture focused on below investment grade or high yield credits. But I looked back at our track record, and we were actually marginally better than the market at picking credits. So our default rates were within a confidence interval of what they should have been, just based on the implied or the direct ratings at the time that we did the deals. Mm-hmm. What was a dramatic outperformance was our recoveries in defaults. Mm-hmm. And that came about through the careful structuring of the transactions and really from the underlying real estate. So if a company went bad, at the end of the day, you had a portfolio of real estate. And so if you picked good underlying real estate, defaults could end up even being a good thing. But I started to pretty early on realize that maybe this business really is much more about what the underlying physical assets are and you know what's happening, what kinds of real estate assets do we actually want to own. Right. The business was always heavily skewed towards industrial assets. And um, we owned lots of distribution centers. We owned some manufacturing facilities. We owned sort of a lot of different things. But that workout experience and the time I spent with the asset management team on those workouts mm-hmm. was really sort of where I got my first real interest in the more traditional industrial real estate side. Mm-hmm. And also in the real estate side as well, because that's when you're touching yeah. assets and figuring them out. Exactly. So many times on the podcast, people have talked about workouts being the place where they got their first real taste of big responsibility. Absolutely. We had a culture at Cary where you worked out your own deals, Mm -hmm. but it was also a firm that had been around a long time. So there were lots of deals that where the investment officer who had done the deal was long gone, but there was a workout to be done. And I always was pushed to be involved in them and always found them very intellectually interesting. And, you know, as as you said, I, I think I learned a lot more from the workouts that I did than from the investments that I did. Mm-hmm. So you end up leaving Cary, set up your own company that then turned into Gramercy. So talk about that. We left, you know, again, just a continuation of that theme. So we went through the financial crisis at WP Cary. WP Cary was very well positioned going through the financial crisis. And mm-hmm. we did a bunch of opportunistic investing, 08, 09, and 10. 
But interest rates had dropped and it stayed low. And so what we found is the opportunity set that we were looking at really hadn't materialized in the scale that we thought it would during the crisis Mm -hmm. in the specific niche that WP Carey was focused on. And as I was saying, like I had been thinking more and more about how this business, this sort of goofy net lease and sale leaseback business really at its heart was a real estate business. Right. And to do it well, you needed to, to really operate it as a real estate business and not as a credit business. You know, I sort of looked at the fact that we really hadn't outperformed on credit selection. That was not our alpha. What we had outperformed on was buying good real estate. And so I left WP Carry with two other colleagues and we set up a business and it ended up, we had originally gone to raise a private equity fund and then that ended up sort of taking shape in the form of us taking over Gramercy Capital, which was essentially just a shell with some cash in it. But the strategy was really to buy good fundamental real estate, focus on income producing sort of interesting yielding assets versus more traditional industrial strategies that were more focused around development. But those sort of initial transactions were all essentially good real estate deals that were disguised as a net lease deal. So it was a great asset, a truck terminal on the New Jersey Turnpike in an infill location, but it was encumbered by a long seven or eight year lease. So the traditional real estate buyers didn't want to buy it because it didn't have the internal growth. We loved it because it sort of met our goals of a yield and good underlying real estate. And then as the business grew and scaled, the strategy shifted more and more towards just a traditional real estate business. So by mm-hmm. the time we sold to Blackstone, we were a pretty conventional industrial real estate platform. And, and when you went over and formed that company and bought Gramercy, and were all of those deals industrial or the majority of that was an industrial theme or no? We were basically all industrial with the exception of we would buy mixed portfolios if we thought it was a path to attractive underlying industrial real estate. Mm-hmm. So there were two large mixed portfolios that we bought. One was from Dividend Capital and one was another public company called Chamber Street, where we actually inherited a significant amount of office in both transactions and then had to work our way through the office, essentially repositioned and sold the office as we went to get to an industrial portfolio at an attractive price. And were you going after industrial because you foresaw or knew the secular change was coming or because you just like industrial? to fit with your kind of approach to the world? We were definitely focused on the secular change. You know, I think we came to industrial before that secular change. I think more from, you know, a practical standpoint that as we looked back at what we had done, you know, over the sort of 20 plus years, industrial had just performed a lot better than everything Mm -hmm. else. One of the things that I've always loved about industrial is it's the bottom of the food chain. So, Industrial buildings get torn down and redeveloped into multifamily or retail or office towers or anything else. It's right. sort of the first step in the real estate value chain. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, that's provided a lot of security. So you end up having good things happen to industrial if you can own it long term. You know, if you own a dumpy old warehouse that happens to be in downtown Austin or in Brooklyn or in, you know, an up and coming neighborhood in Nashville or downtown Miami, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden that neighborhood grows up and that building you paid $5 million for is now worth 25 million. 
that happens in industrial in a way that I haven't had similar experience in other asset classes. Right. We did a lot of this at Gramercy and we, and we still do a lot of it. We'll buy things, we call them covered land plays, but mm-hmm. we own a 75 acre flea market in Miami. It's an unbelievable redevelopment site. It's got a flea market operator that operates on a long lease. So we're sort of getting paid while we wait for the redevelopment opportunity to materialize. So we we love situations like that. Right. Although that seems like the old approach, not the secular change approach to industrial, because that's always been the truth, right? The path of growth, yeah, no, industrial absolutely. sits there. Secular and change, I think, a whole you know, one, story. One point to make on the secular change, if you look through our tenant list of our smaller infill buildings, mm-hmm. there's certainly a lot of e-commerce users and sort of users that you think of as being very relevant in that secular change. Mm-hmm. There's also just a lot of small businesses, but those businesses are very location centric. So if it's a guy supplying HVAC units or doing repair or something for a trade area, he can't move his business 25 miles down the highway right. and still access his customer base. Mm-hmm. And What's happened historically is he didn't have that incremental competitor for that facility. So he was just competing with the other sort of local trade type users in in an individual market. What's happening today is you now have incremental demand from those new users, but those old users haven't gone away. So they're benefiting from all the same sort of normal economic tailwinds that traditionally have driven the industrial business but all of a sudden there's all these new users coming into the market and there's, there really hasn't been the growth in supply to meet that. And so that's translated into a lot of rent growth. And in some cases, some of those guys are just getting displaced in, in a city like LA or New York. I was going to say the white panel you know, truck guy has to be further out because they can't afford that anymore. Yeah. Uh-huh. But our portfolio is not all Amazon and new economy e-commerce businesses. It's a lot of traditional small businesses and traditional industrial users. Mm-hmm. Well, the headline becomes Amazon. So that's the the other question in the conversation becomes, is this all about Amazon or is it all the rest of it too? Yeah. I think it's important for people to understand that. that it is much more broadly felt trend that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to wrap up soon, but we haven't talked about your organization that much. And also when you left Gramercy or WP Care, I think you left with Nick, who might be your partner in all this and others, but talk about kind of the kernel of that organization and then maybe the yin-yang of how maybe the two of you have worked together and grown this alongside each other to some degree. Sure. No, absolutely. So when we left WP Carey, it was Nick and another partner, a gentleman named Gordon Dugan, who was the CEO of WP Carey at the time. And the three of us left and took on the Gramercy Project together. And we worked extremely closely. We had all worked together at WP Carey and worked extremely closely together building up Gramercy. And mm-hmm. when we sold to Blackstone, Gordon moved on and Nick and I stayed on to sort of co-head the U.S. industrial business. So I recruited Nick out of grad school years and years ago at, at WP Carey. We've worked very closely together and I can't stress it enough how much more fulfilling it is to take on projects like this with a close partner and someone that you can think through issues with and sort of put your head down and work through things and go through the sort of the ups and downs of what's been a pretty remarkable first project. And we're, and we're just sort of taking on another one. But I think 
it's a great thing if you can find someone that you're friends with and a great colleague. And it's been a critical part of the success of what we've been Mm -hmm. able to do. We've heard it many times on Leading Voices. Often it's the story of the lone entrepreneur who figures it out. It's always a team and people always respect their team, but often it's two people who together march forward and do it. Question for that is in your leadership and your leadership moving from being kind of an investor to a CEO, if that's a fair comment, how have you and Nick spent your time and have you split up things and where do you tend to lean towards and where does he tend to lean towards and how do you benefit from that? I think Nick and I, I think we actually serve each other in a pretty complimentary manner. I'm probably a little bit more introverted and spend more of my time working through some of the business building, some of the operating problems and you know the nuts and bolts things. Nick's a little bit more gregarious and outward focusing. You know, he's a very natural new business and client facing guy. So he spends a lot of his time on the new investment side. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think the important thing is, I think a partnership works well if you both know your strengths and weaknesses, but there's enough overlap that it's not sort of a full-blown delegation. Right. Because I think you both need to understand enough about what the other is doing that it doesn't become disconnected. I figured you both have to know the whole instead of, hey, I got half of it, you got half of it, don't bother me with your half. That feels like a recipe for not success. But Exactly. Yep, it makes total sense. So before we wrap up, one last question about the secular change. Are there more secular changes to come, surprises, disruptors we don't know about? I think a driverless truck says something that will change, or in driverless cars that may change this game. Is there that or other things that we have to look forward to and predict? I think there's, we're looking at a lot of those new technologies, drone delivery, mm-hmm. autonomous vehicles. I think those will all have an impact. And I think, you know, it's something that you need to understand and monitor and think through the different scenarios of how it will affect your portfolio. I think that there's enormous progress to be made on automation within the box. So robotic Mm -hmm. solutions for material handling. I think when you Google a logistics facility, you see a shiny, fancy, brand new, fully racked facility with boxes stacked up to the ceiling and big sophisticated Rapistan equipment. The reality is very few users are actually utilizing the cubic space in that way. So I think that's an area of a lot of progress. I think when you look at the projections for how much, let's say e-commerce, the channel shift is what I was talking about earlier. Right. It goes it from is. you know, 15% to 30%. What that projects in terms of new industrial supply that, that would be required to achieve that mm-hmm. is such a big number that it doesn't, you can't sort of get your head around how that amount of space could actually be delivered. I think the solution to that will be in better material handling equipment, more efficient use of the cubic space within a warehouse. I think you will start to see the multi-story facilities in the dense urban locations that you see in Asia. You're starting to see them here. But I think those will be some of the evolutions that we'll see. And I think this is an area where there's going to be a lot of really interesting technology implemented. It seems a bit grandiose. We're, all, all we do is sort of own the box and the 3PLs and the e-commerce 
companies are the ones actually mm-hmm. doing the innovation and, and thinking through what's happening in the box. But I think for us, we, we want to make sure we have a footprint of facilities that facilitate that future growth. And we're thinking ahead and making sure, you know, do we have the power requirements and do we have the right box in the right location that is going to be interesting to different companies as the mm-hmm. industry evolves. It's funny. It's kind of like gas stations supplying the auto industry and having gas-powered vehicles, having the industrial infrastructure placed in the right place. We're making huge investments as a society in this. Uh, one of the things you and I were talking about offline before the conversation was environmental issues. And I'll go into one of those because it's a curious one in your space just because we can doesn't mean we should. So I'm thinking about next day delivery being something that shouldn't always happen. And I check the box for next day because why not? It's free. And maybe the default should be, well, we're going to get it to you when it's efficient, not when it's immediate, just because unless you absolutely need it. So I think embedded in the structures that we have without thinking about those issues, I think we're causing some long-term problems that may apply to gridlock or it may apply to environmental issues as well. I think it's a great point. As someone who loves being outside and skiing and hiking and everything, one of my favorite e-commerce providers is a company called Backcountry. Mm-hmm. And they actually have that as one of the shipping options is sort of a one day, two day, three day, or like environmental. And then it, for the environmental, they just optimize it for whatever they deem to be the sort of the least environmentally impactful. Yeah. Absolutely. Makes total sense. Okay. So last question on the podcast always is if you have advice for a young person entering the real estate business, what would you share with them? I would tell someone to not be too dogmatic about what they think they want to do and be open-minded to different opportunities and focus on working for high quality people and working with high quality people. And I think that becomes much more important to your overall career than the department of the individual bank that you join or you know the ultimately the firm that you join. I think it's one of the reasons that you end up with especially in the real estate business you end up with these diasporas of teams where like the old JMB is a great example. The best the, one. The yep. number of JMB alums that are in senior seats all throughout the real estate industry you know, including a huge influence on the Blackstone real estate business, especially earlier in your career, having the opportunity to work with really high quality people, working for really high quality people. You know, I think that pays dividends throughout your whole career, much more so than the sort of the specific department or or asset class that you were focused on. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Two episodes in a row with that conversation. I talked with Amy Price from Bentall Green Oak, and she started at Morgan Stanley. And you raise your bar by starting somewhere challenging, tough, with really smart people. And then you follow them through your career and you do business with them again and again. I call it alumni clubs, diaspora alumni clubs. It really, really matters. Pays back and Yeah, no, absolutely. Ben, thank you very, very much for this conversation. This has been delightful. I have learned a lot. I think our listeners will as well. And I wish you all of the success in your business as it keeps growing, as it obviously will. Happy New Year. Great to speak. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. 
Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.